It's Thursday, January 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Joe Biden has now been inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. In his inaugural address, he stressed the message of unity, calling for an end to the uncivil war, pitting the left against the right. As president of the Senate, Vice President Kamala Harris swore in new Democratic senators. And former President Trump left town early, saying he would be back again soon in some form. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, joins us for how the day played out. Next, before leaving office, President Trump granted clemency to 143 people, 73 pardons, and 70 commutations. Most notably, people that did not make the list were President Trump himself, family members, Rudy Giuliani, or Tiger King Joe Exotic. Names that did stand out included Steve Bannon and rapper Lil Wayne. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs correspondent at Politico, joins us for who got the last Trump pardons. Finally, a check-in on what kind of country Joe Biden is inheriting as he takes office. The U.S. is older, with less people giving birth. It is financially insecure as the pandemic has devastated the economy. And people are politically polarized more than ever. Paul Overberg, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Please raise your white hand. Okay. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? Joining us now is Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Joe Biden has been sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. It was in a very eventful day, different from most inaugurations. You know, the parade was different, all that. President Trump was not there at the inauguration. He chose instead to leave the White House earlier in the morning on his way to his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. But Julia, let's start off with Joe Biden's inaugural address and some key takeaways from there. A message of unity was the main thing. You know, he also set aside a little moment of silence for those that lost their lives to COVID-19. I thought that was pretty powerful there. So, Julia, tell us what you thought about the inaugural address from Joe Biden. So I think the message of unity was really one of the key takeaways. This has been something that Joe Biden has been pledging for a while. And I think it was obviously very important for him to pledge it today while he was surrounded on that balcony on Capitol Hill with Republicans and Democrats, lawmakers, former lawmakers, former vice presidents, former presidents. It was a moment for unity. And I think what was demonstrated today showed unity at the top levels of U.S. government. And he wanted to reflect that in his address. One particular part of his address that I thought was very striking, and he said similar things like this before, but he made a direct appeal to President Trump's supporters. And he essentially said, hear me out. Listen to what I have to say. I am reaching out to you. I am trying to make this country better for you. I'm not only trying to make this country better for my own voters, but also for people who didn't vote for me. And he said, even if you continue to disagree with me, that's okay. That's democracy. That's normal. So I thought that was definitely the right tone to set, especially after the violence we saw that broke out on Capitol Hill just weeks ago. Obviously, Vice President Kamala Harris making history as well as the first woman to hold that office, the first black and South Asian American woman to hold that office also. 
you know, she had to go into the Senate as president of the Senate and swear in some new Democratic senators. Absolutely. And that moment with her swearing in the Democratic senators was so incredibly historic as well. So you have the first woman, the first black, the first South Asian vice president there swearing in the first Jewish millennial senator from Georgia, the first black senator from Georgia. And then you have the first Latino senator from California. So that was a really big moment and a lot of history in that moment. And I think it just really encapsulates how much of a melting pot America is and how much we're seeing that melting pot and that diversity now really trickle up to the top tier of government. You know, it's so interesting as a woman watching today, I couldn't help but think about how there are younger generations of younger girls and future generations of younger girls who will not know a world without a woman vice president or a world where there hasn't been a woman vice president. That's huge. And I think it really shows how much progress we've made as a country and really how much progress women and minorities have made really going forward in uh, elected office. And then finally, Julia, President Trump didn't go to the inauguration. He chose instead to leave early in the morning. He did stop and talk to some supporters that he had uh, at Joint Base Andrews, just kind of touting some of his accomplishments. He had kind of a little weird send off at the end saying, we'll be back in some form. Have a good life. (laughs) That was kind of a weird little send off there. But, you know, what did President Trump say at the end of his term there? President Trump was really trying to tout his accomplishments. Um, He talked a lot about his family, thanked his supporters and such, really made it about him and what he's done. It was interesting to see how it looked like almost like a mini Trump rally. He came off of Marine One with the First Lady and there was music playing. And, you know, that's par for the course for a Trump rally. So it just seemed to be a mini Trump rally. One notable thing is that he did not mention President Biden's name. He said he wished the new administration well, but that's all we got from him. However, we did learn that he continued the tradition of leaving a note to the next president in the Oval Office. And we just heard Joe Biden, who is in the Oval Office at this very moment, signing executive orders, saying he thought the letter was, quote unquote, very generous. And he said that he would not be revealing the contents of the letter until potentially after he speaks with President Trump. So we weren't expecting to see that letter, but we learned it happened. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And then some more obscure figures, or at least people that are not in the news all the time, a professional gambler and I think former professional golfer by the name of Billy Walters got a commutation. Joining us now is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs contributor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Hey, Oscar. Good to be with you. Let's talk about pardons and clemency. We have a new administration in, but at the end of every administration, the president usually throws out a bunch of pardons. Donald Trump granted clemency to 143 people total. I think we had 73 pardons and commuted the sentences of 70 other people. Most notably for not being on the list was the president himself or his family. There was a lot of talk that that could happen Also, we didn't see Rudy Giuliani and other big names. Julian Assange, Edward Snowden didn't make the list there. But we did see things for rappers Lil Wayne, Kodak Black, and probably the biggest one 
is a former campaign manager, Steve Bannon. So, Josh, tell us a little bit about these pardons and commutations. I would say that they were not as provocative as sort of earth shattering as some people thought was possible. Obviously, if Trump had decided to try to pardon himself, that would be something completely unprecedented in American history, and it would have provoked legal challenges. Some people said he thought it might have intensified federal investigations into the president. President Richard Nixon actually considered a self-pardon, but decided to leave the White House without granting that to himself and later got a pardon from President Ford, of course. Probably of the pardons that were issued, Steve Bannon, probably the most noteworthy and provocative. Steve Bannon was founder, editor of the Breitbart website, then went on to be a key strategist, maybe the central strategist of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, and then a a top advisor in the White House before falling out with the president about a year or so over there at the White House. So he had continued to be a supporter of President Trump, had backed a lot of the talk about election fraud in the 2020 vote, the kind of things that the president has been advancing for the last couple of months that don't seem to have a lot of factual foundation to them that may have been in part to get back into Trump's good graces. The reason it was so important for Bannon is that he's facing a federal prosecution along with three other men for fraud in connection with private fundraising for construction of a border wall along the U.S. border with Mexico. Prosecutors in New York got an indictment of him and these others saying that they lied about various aspects of their fundraising and that they diverted funds to obviously personal use and luxury. You mentioned in your article that the pardon of Bannon may have an unintended effect on his upcoming impeachment trial. How do you see that going? And this may also play into why the president didn't pardon himself, didn't pardon his family members, didn't pardon Rudy Giuliani. You know, if the president had simply left office and didn't have anything hanging over his head, he might have felt a lot more latitude, a lot more flexibility and freedom to do as he saw fit on these pardons and perhaps grant more of them more widely. But even this pardon to Bannon, Bannon, as I said, was involved in the movement to put forward these ideas of election fraud. He encouraged people to go to the January 6th rally at the Capitol. He claims that he didn't incite any violence, but he was talking about revolution and telling people how important it was to be down there and that something very, very major was going to happen. So he was certainly fanning the flames of what would eventually happen there, the embers of what led to flames essentially at the Capitol. Whether he would be legally liable for that, I don't know. But some senators might find it provocative that President Trump decided to pardon Bannon on his way out the door. On the other hand, I think it's not as provocative as it would have been to grant pardon to himself, to grant pardons, for example, to the rioters. We have more than 100 people now facing federal criminal charges that range from sort of trespassing to assault on police officers to obstruction of Congress. And the president could have sought to pardon all those people. And some of those people had specifically asked him for pardons. And there was nothing like that on the final list of 143 that you mentioned. What are some of the other significant names we might know? You know, looking through the list, I saw a lot of uh, financial corruption crimes, more so than anything else, I think. Those, I think, were the ones who got the most attention. There are dozens in here of ordinary folks that had cases relating to drug trafficking, the drug trade, uh, who had very, very long sentences under the drug laws that were put into effect in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, often 
sentences of a couple decades or more. So the president did do some of those, but he did far, far fewer than President Barack Obama did. I think Obama did about 1,500 or so of those commutations. There were pardons in here. The commutation for Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick of Detroit, who was serving a 28-year corruption sentence. There were pardons that sort of cleared the record of some of Trump's supporters, former uh, Congressman Rick Renzi of Arizona and Duke Cunningham of California, and then some more obscure figures, or at least people that are not in the news all the time, a professional gambler, and I think former professional golfer by the name of Billy Walters got a commutation. And even one of the figures in this Varsity Blues investigation, which is the one into corruption in the college admissions process, many, many defendants there, dozens of people, Lori Laughlin, people may have heard about the case against her, a lot of other prominent folks who had a lot of cash and were willing to throw it around to get their kids into college in what the prosecutors say was an illegal way. One Miami developer, I don't know if he's a friend of Trump or what the exact connection was, but he got a pardon and uh, he hadn't even gone to trial yet. So some of these acts of clemency can be very significant. Obviously, if someone's serving a lengthy sentence or facing a potential lengthy sentence and the president wipes it out, cuts it short, that is a major, major deal. In other instances, you do have the more benign kind of pardon, I would say, which is someone who may have served their sentence decades ago wants to clear their record or maybe wants to go into some kind of business where they can't have a criminal record. So it's really a mix of decisions that went way into the late night hours on Tuesday into Wednesday. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs contributor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to do it, Oscar. Take care. We have a chance to change things. The reason I got involved in politics when I was a kid at 26 years old, running for local office to try to change redlining. I really mean it. So you shouldn't be doing this unless you feel it. Joining us now is Paul Overberg, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me. We have a new president. Joe Biden has been inaugurated the 46th president of the United States. Wanted to take a little bit of time to kind of check in on the country that he's inheriting. He's got a lot of problems on his plate, obviously, with coronavirus, the economy, all that. But what does the country look like right now? Obviously, we have an aging population that's going on. The economy, as I mentioned, is a little shaky due to that pandemic. And, you know, a lot of jobs lost throughout this whole thing. And as we've been talking about continuously leading up to the election, the country is more politically polarized than it's been in recent years. So, Paul, tell us a little bit more about this. Putting aside the pandemic and all the ripple effects from it we've seen for the last year, the country was finally, in the last few years, shaking off the lasting effects of the 2008-2009 recession. And incomes would really hit record levels. The poverty rate had dropped as low as it had ever been since the late 1950s. And the country was, you know, economically, unemployment was down to pretty low levels. But the country also was sort of seeing still the sort of long-term demographic trends of fewer children being born, more diversity, especially in places that were off the coast. And so all those things just sort of continue in the background. And then the pandemic and all of its effects sort of land on top of that. So it's quite a complex mixed picture. With the pandemic, I think it says we've lost maybe about a year in life expectancy right Mm -hmm. now. As you mentioned, women are not having as many babies right now. So 
throughout this, we might see more deaths outpacing births actually in this, in the country. There are a number of places, smaller rural places typically, where there are more people dying than being born. Often the people, you know, young adults move elsewhere for work or college and they raise their families in other places. That's going to probably become more widespread once the 2020 data with all the pandemic effects is finally pulled together. So the country's been aging as a result of fewer children and obviously with an aging population, death rates tend to creep up. Immigration becomes a key piece of that, and immigration has slowed down a bit over the last few years. So in general, you have a country that's sort of getting a little more gray. Now, life expectancy is a little different. Typically, that creeps up slowly in developed countries a little bit every year, and the United States is still near the top, but nowhere at the top. And it sort of flattened out and dropped a little bit in the last few years because of the opioid epidemic. It was probably going to start turning up again, but now the pandemic is, for 2020 at least, going to put a quick notch in that, and we'll see where it goes from there. It seems that the share of Americans who identify as either conservative or liberal hasn't changed that much, but we are seeing people go more to the left or more to the right, you know, to the fringes of it, I guess you could say. Tell me a little bit about that. The Wall Street Journal does regular political polling conjunction with NBC. And one of the questions we ask is not just, are you conservative or liberal, but do you consider yourself very liberal or very conservative? And the trend in the last few years has been slightly more people are calling themselves either very conservative or very liberal and slightly fewer just plain old conservative or liberal. It suggests that this sort of long-term polarization in the country's attitudes has continued a little bit in the last few years. And to anybody's guess where it goes now. And, you know, that's important right now coming out of the election we just had. Joe Biden in his inauguration speech calling for unity. I mean, that's one of the biggest hurdles that he's going to have to overcome in his administration is actually bringing people together, if it's possible. The way the Senate is divided right now, 50-50 right down the line, is bipartisan legislation going to be passed. These are uh, big hurdles for the president now. And finally, I just wanted to ask, too, kind of the mobility of Americans. You know, we hear a lot of stories about people from big states, California and New York, moving inward, moving to places like Iowa, Idaho, things like that. How are people moving around through the country? Well, until the pandemic in the past year, mobility had been basically the rate at which people move, especially long distance moves, had been dropping for years, partly because the country's older and people tend to move more when they're younger, partly because there was a growing disparity, say, between the cost of living in expensive places and less expensive places. Some of it is the political and cultural polarization that's going on, too. Now, the pandemic is probably going to do a fair amount of shaking up of that pattern. We just don't see, we don't have good data yet to see it, but a lot of people obviously have moved in the last year away from populated places to sparser places, whether that lasts once everybody gets vaccinated. Who knows? It's going to be interesting to watch, though. Paul Overberg, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.